please turn to Luke 17 in your Bibles with me, if you would. As you turn there, uh, just you may have noticed this in the bulletin, but in a few uh, weeks, over Labor Day weekend, we'll be holding another baptismal service. And if you have not been baptized, I encourage you uh, to consider that as, as part of uh, an essential aspect of your Christian life. And Jesus, as he gives the great commissions, tells us to make disciples, and an essential part of identifying yourself as a disciple of Jesus Christ is baptism. The early church didn't know of believers who weren't baptized, and so I encourage you to consider that if uh, that's an area of your your Christian life that you've not yet been obedient to the Lord in. I just uh, encourage you, we'd love to talk with you about how you can participate in that, and the information is there in your your worship uh, folders this morning, so encourage you to, to think about that. uh, Luke 17, uh, verses 7 through 10, we're continuing as Jesus is talking to his disciples. And if you would, in honor of God, uh, stand as we read his word together. Luke 17, uh, beginning in verse 7, and I'm, I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. Jesus says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep Say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty." You may be seated and may be encouraged through God's word this morning, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are called into relationship with you through faith in your son Jesus, and we thank you for the ability you give us to be obedient. We pray that as we look at these words this morning, our hearts would change. We pray for those in our church whose hearts are heavy, for those who are struggling with obedience to you in in various areas. We pray that you'd give them your grace. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Last summer, uh, Whitney's grandmother uh, passed away, and and yesterday afternoon, uh, Whitney's grandfather remarried in in a ceremony in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and we listened to the ceremony over the phone, and it was a very brief ceremony, but, but one of the things that Whitney and her, her sisters are kind of thinking through, and I'm sure you can sympathize with this, is, is how do we relate to this new woman in Grandpa's life? Do we call her grandmother? Do we call her Doris? Uh, I'm advocating they call her Doris Day, but that's not really caught on yet. But, but how do we relate to this new woman in such a way in which we're showing that we care about her, but we're not presuming upon a relationship, and we're not tarnishing the memory of grandma. You can see it can be kind of a tough thing to define the relationship with this new person, this, this new person in the family. Defining the relationship can be, can be tough in a variety of circumstances as we, as we think about human relationships, right? The last day of my junior year of high school, I was uh, talking to a friend, and he said, hey, hey, Daniel, would you like to go to the water park with us? And I thought about it, and I thought, okay, I'd have to go home and get swim trunks, and then I'd have to get in the car and, and drive out to the water park. I don't even like water parks really all that much. And you, you can tell I've, I've never been a fun person. Um, 
and, and I said, well, well who, all's, who all's going? He pointed to a group of people. He said, well, all those people are going. I said, hey, is, is, that, is that Whitney Pate? Oh, yeah, that's Whitney Pate. Is she going? Uh, well, yeah. I said, well, huh. Do you, do you know Whitney very well? And he said, do I know her? I'm dating her. I said, yeah, I'm out. I don't really want to go. Well, fast forward a few months, and I'm, I'm talking to, to Whitney Pate now, the girl around the corner. We're talking. I said, hey, you know, I, I talked to this guy, and he said you guys are, are dating. And she goes, no, we, we went out with some, some friends a couple times, but no, we've, we've never dated. And I got excited about that. And I realized that this a young man that was talking to me had made a very crucial mistake. Uh, he had failed to confer with Whitney to make sure that she knew that they were dating as well. And so whenever Whitney and I began to date, uh, I got it in writing just so that everyone was on the same page and we defined the relationship very clearly. And then we got married and, you know, take that guy in high school. Um, <laughs> defining the relationship, it's, it's really important to do. It's, it's very crucial that you rightly, you both have the right expectations of what this relationship looks like. And, and it's true in all areas of life. You know, you think about your kids as they get older. How do you, how do you relate to them? You think about your coworkers. How do you make sure that you have a, the right, appropriate relationship with them? And, and, and just every facet of life. And if that's true, that it's important to define the relationship rightly between ourselves and, and other people that we come into contact with, how much more important is it and, and how much more difficult is it to rightly understand our relationship with the God of the universe? How much more important is it to rightly understand how we are to relate to the sovereign God who is, who is God over all things, who who fills every, every crevice of the universe, every, every, every molecule God is somehow in and through and, and holding together, and he is the reason the whole universe exists, and, and, and yet we're to have a relationship with him. How do you define that? How do you understand that? How do you grasp that idea? It's, it's enormous. And maybe before you, were, before you became a Christian, you kind of thought, okay, well, God is like this, this Santa Claus type figure who exists to give me what I want and to make me happy. And, and my relationship with God is kind of like my relationship with Santa Claus. I tell him what he, I would like, and he makes sure it happens as much as he's able. Or maybe you thought of God as kind of a stern judge, this, this cosmic killjoy. And, and a God is up there watching everything you do. When you step out of line, psh, you know, he zaps you or something, get back in the line. And that's kind of was your view of God. Or, and maybe your view of God evolved and you thought, okay, well, well God is, is kind of like a, a stern dad or a loving dad. Or, or maybe he's kind of like a buddy. And, and your relationship with God has has evolved and changed as you've tried to understand the picture of who God is. And, and all those images that I just described have some element of truth in them, right? God is a judge. God is a father. God does love us. Every good and perfect gift does come from God. And yet, we have to constantly take those images back to the Word of God and say, okay, now, God, how do you describe your relationship with us? How should I view me in relationship to you based upon your Word? And one of the images we see in Scripture to describe our relationship with God, one of the pictures that God gives us is the picture between a master and his slave. And if you and I are to rightly understand the created order of the universe, 
if you and I are to rightly understand our relationship with the creator of the universe, we have to understand this idea of a, a master and his slaves. And sometimes, I believe, as we encounter difficulty in life, part of our difficulty stems from the idea that we don't rightly understand this image of a master and his slaves. We encounter problems in our relationships with other people. We, we encounter uh, times in which things don't go the way that we think they should go, and, and we become angry about it, or we become embittered about it, or, or we find disappointment in life. And a lot of that stems from the fact that we don't understand that a sovereign God is in control of our lives, and we are his slaves, his servants, and we are to conduct our lives in obedience to him. Sometimes we live our life and we say, and we have no understanding of the fact that the decisions we make, the paths we pursue in life, are to be done in obedience to what our master tells us to do. So what I want to do with you this morning is I want to unpack Luke 17, verses 7 through 10 with you. And I, I want us to think through this idea of a, of a master and a slave. What does it mean that God is our master? What sort of expectations should a slave have of his or her master and of his or her own life? And we're going to first of all look at some unrealistic expectations that a slave might have, and then we're going to look at realistic expectations. So let's first of all look at unrealistic expectations, wrong expectations of a slave in verses 7, and we're also going to see this in verse 9. Verse 7, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, now, is any of you, will any of you who has a servant, and that word servant is the word doulos, it's, it's the Greek word, and you'll notice that in English translations, that word doulos in the Greek is generally translated servant. And yet, the word literally means slave. So why do they translate it servant so often? Well, I believe the reason is because of all the negative connotations with slavery in our culture, in our North American cultural context. As we think about our nation's history with slaves, slaves is a particularly dark history, a part of our history. And so, as we think about that aspect of slavery in our culture, it, it can carry, that word slave can carry so many connotations that the translators have felt like the better word is, is servant. Let me just take a moment and describe slavery in the first century so you can kind of understand what the picture that Jesus is painting here is. In the first century, in this culture, about 15 to 30 percent of the population were slaves. That is, they were owned by another person. They were considered, in some sense, the property of someone else. And a person didn't become a slave simply because of their ethnicity. A person became a slave through a variety of circumstances. They might be born into slavery. They might have become uh, one of the conquered people. They might have, uh, through financial difficulty, got themselves into slavery. And so a person uh, was a slave not because of their ethnicity, but because of some other circumstance in their life. Furthermore, it wasn't like in this culture, it wasn't like you had people at the top and then you had 
all these other different uh, social groups, and at the very bottom you had slaves. What you found in the first century were slaves existed in every different social strata, you know, every different class along that social strata. You had some people that were at the very bottom of society who were slaves. You had people who were out working in the fields that were slaves. You had people that were inside the, the home running things, administering things who were slaves. You had people who were physicians who were slaves. You had people who were part of the ruling elite who were slaves. You had people throughout the different classes who would have been considered slaves. And slavery was something that the New Testament writers were very acquainted with. And you had uh, the New Testament writers often addressing people who were part of the church who were slaves. Remember, as Paul writes to Philemon, he talks about Onesimus, Philemon's slave, and he talks to Philemon about how to rightly respond to Onesimus, not just as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. Paul talks to entire households and refers to slaves in Romans and 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 7, he talks, about, he talks to slaves and says, look, if you're a slave when you're called, when you become a Christian, don't be concerned about it. But if you have the opportunity for your freedom, Seek that. Avail yourself of that opportunity. In Ephesians and Colossians and 1 Timothy, he talks to masters and slaves and, and tells them how to, to relate rightly to one another as well. And so the New Testament writers were familiar with this picture of slavery. And in the first century, a slave would have been someone who was uh, not autonomous. They were owned by someone else, and that person who owned them had, the, had authority over their lives. A slave couldn't simply say, I'm going to go do this today. A slave was under the direction of his or her master. And so Jesus is talking to his disciples here, and, and when he uses that word that we translate servant here, that word really means a slave, a one, one who's owned by another, one who's not autonomous, who is uh, underneath the authority of another person, in the sense of, even of ownership. And uh, Jesus, the masterful storyteller that he is, notice what he says. He says, will any of you who has a servant, in other words, uh, you are in the position of a master, he tells his disciples. And if you have a servant, a slave, and that, and, and in your capacity as a master, that slave is out there working all day really hard and, and doing this difficult work. And if that slave comes into the home, and now it's dinner time, will you, in your capacity as a master, say, hey, you know what? It, it's, it's you time. Let me take care of you. Go ahead, sit down. I'm going to get you something nice. Jesus' listeners would have been appalled at that idea. No, 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 that's, that's not how hierarchy works. Jesus isn't addressing the rightness or the wrongness of slavery. What he's saying here is, look, you understand hierarchy. You understand authority. And if you were in a position of authority, you would not have an expectation that you would serve the person under you. You would have an expectation that they would serve you. And a slave who would come in from the field come in from working outside, come in to the home, and believe that he was going to be served would be a slave with some very wrong expectations. It doesn't exist in quite the same way in our culture today, right? But we can get that idea. If you're a parent and you tell your child, hey, it's, it's time to, to clean your room, and the child goes and cleans his or her room and then comes downstairs, it's not like, oh, you, you did what I told you to do? Well, now you're the parent, and I'm going to do what you tell me to do. No, you understand this authority that existed before they did what you told them to do still exists after they did what you told them to do. 
a student doesn't go to school, and during the first two periods of the day, the, the teacher tells them what to do, and they turn in their assignments to the teacher, and then third period, they become the ones who are in charge, and the teacher does what they ask the, the, the teacher to do. The teacher stays in authority. In a job, you know, your, your boss doesn't come to you and say, hey, you know what? Well, may, maybe you have a really good boss, but most bosses don't come to you and say, hey, you know what? You work so hard. Um, let me give you my bonus. Let me give you the salary that I make because you're just, you're just a go-getter. So let me give that to you. If you have that kind of boss, you know, more power to you. But even in our cultural setting, we understand there's a hierarchy. And in that hierarchy, people act in accordance with their positions of authority. So Jesus says here, which one of you, if you had a slave, would, would turn this social hierarchy on its head and, and do what the slave wanted you to do instead of the slave doing what you wanted the slave to do? So here's the first, there's going to be two wrong expectations, but here's the first wrong expectation we see in the text. The first wrong or unrealistic expectation for a slave would be that the slave should be served. Our wrong expectation in terms of our relationship with God would be that, that, that God exists to serve us or that others exist to serve us. We have this idea, and, and you and I both know that we struggle with this sometimes, is that other people who are in our lives exist to do what we want them to do. Our parents exist to serve us. We have these things that we want mom and dad to do. We want them to give us our, our food when we want it. We want them to take us where we want us to go. And so we have this expectation, this unrealistic expectation that mom and dad exist to serve us or our husband or wife exists to, to serve us. Sometimes we have an unrealistic expectation that the, the church exists to serve us and to meet our needs that we identify. In fact, I was reading a, a book by David Wells, and I've, I've mentioned it before. It's called The Courage to be Protestant. And David Wells is talking about churches that try to market themselves to what people want. And, and by the way, if you find a church that's simply asking the question, what do you want and let me give it to you? That could be a very dangerous church in which to be. Very often in our culture, we find churches that are trying to, to target certain subsections of, of, of our culture. For example, the younger generation that say, okay, what do young people want? What, what, do, they, what do they want? What are they identifying as their tastes? And we're going to tailor our, our entire church to meet that generation or that age group. And, and let me tell you, if you're in that age group that's being targeted, that's a very dangerous place for you to be spiritually, potentially. Here's what David Wells says. David Wells uh, says, uh, one, he's talking about churches marketing themselves. He says, one of the ways of making the experience of going to church more pleasant is to offer choice. Consumers, and he refers to people in a congregation as consumers, consumers want to be able to choose the style of music they hear, the kind of worship they participate in, and to have a say in what they hear from the bar stool up front. I think it's okay if you use your bar stool just like to hold your water. I don't think... I don't know. I'd have to talk to David Wells about that. He says, uh, he says having a, a, a wide array of choices, after all, is the way the world is going. And he gives the example of music, and he talks about how we used to be able to, we used to have to go to listen to a concert, and, and then we had uh, phonographs and CDs and now iPods. And he's talking about our ability to customize what we want. And he says, uh, 
this is what I, the consumer, really want. I want to be able to select what I hear and choose what I do in church. Why should worship not be customized? Consumers and pastors alike are asking, okay? A wrong, unrealistic expectation of a slave is that others exist to serve us. Others or, or God exists to serve us. And sometimes we consciously think this, God should be doing what I want him to do in this situation, and sometimes it, it's an unconscious thing. We have this expectation that God should serve us in the big catastrophic events in life as we encounter those. We think, man, I, I shouldn't be going through whatever this, this calamity is. Th- this isn't what, what I desire, and, and therefore it's, it's wrong. And it's even in the, the tiny things in life, our, our hearts betray us as we think God exists to serve us instead of the other way around. Just this past week, we were playing a, a game as a family, a, a nerds, this little game with, with the family, and um, I found myself saying a phrase that I use often, and sometimes it betrays a wrong heart attitude. And it's a one-word phrase, and it's, it's, it's the phrase, really? As in, I've encountered this situation, and, and really, I'm going through this? I'm shocked. I'm playing this game, and, and statistically, I believe that the next cards I play should be such and such, and I turn over my cards, and there's something, really? The entire universe has conspired against me like this? I, I don't understand how this is possible. I'm shocked. And you know what I'm betraying? I'm betraying the, this idea that the universe vaguely, or God in particular, should be doing in these circumstances what I want him to be doing. God in his sovereign providence should have these cards turn over that I desire. I, I come to a stoplight. Really? A stoplight? Me? This should be green right now, statistically. And, and by God's providence, I should not be stopped in this car right now. We have this idea in, in tiny things and in large things. Really? This boss? This situation? At school? This person betrays me like this? Really? It betrays an idea that we have this expectation that God should be doing what we want God to be doing. As opposed to saying, I'm a slave. I go out, I work in the field. I come inside, and I keep working. Sometimes we say, okay, I've been obedient for like 10 minutes. I've been obedient for, for 10 years in this area, and, and now I, I no longer should have to be obedient. That's a wrong expectation for a slave. Galatians 6, 9, and 10 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not go up, give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. And so the slave says, I've worked out in the field, and I've been obedient, and now I come inside the house, and I continue to do what I'm called to do. I continue to be obedient. The disobedient slave, the slave with wrong expectations, unrealistic expectations, is, okay, I've, I've done my obedience time, now it's me time expects God to serve him or her instead of serving God. So that's one wrong expectation, an unrealistic expectation of a slave in verse 7. Now look over at verse 9. He gives the right expectation in verse 8, and we'll look at that in just a moment. In verse 9, after obedience, does the master, does he, verse 9, thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Now what's the unrealistic expectation there? 
the unrealistic expectation there, the slave has the expectation that he or she should be praised. Hey, I've done what I was supposed to do. Praise me. Thank me. No, you did what you were supposed to do. That's expected. The unrealistic expectation is to be praised for it. And so often, our emotional expectation is that I'm being obedient to God in order to receive praise from people or from God that I think that I deserve. That is not the right expectation of a slave. In fact, let me, um, let me read some, some portions of the Psalms to you. And I'm, I'm going to do something here that, that makes me a little bit hesitant, okay? So, so listen carefully to what I'm doing. I'm going to change just a couple words in these Psalms. Just, just change them a little bit. But as I change them just a, a tiny little bit, um, I'm basically communicating a blasphemous idea. Which makes me nervous. So listen to what I, I'm, I'm not saying this is the right way to translate these verses. I'm saying this is the way that we often interpret them. Or these are the things that are on our hearts as we think about our unrealistic expectations of a slave. So for example, I'm just going to change it one word or two in Psalm 34.1. Psalm 34.1, I will bless myself at all times. My praise shall continually be in my mouth. You see the difference? <laughs> Psalm 40, verse 5, I have multiplied my wondrous deeds and my thoughts toward me. None can compare with me. I will proclaim and tell of my wondrous deeds, yet they're more than can be told. That's wrong. And yet, that's the unrealistic expectations we sometimes have of ourselves, you and I, who are slaves. My deeds are wondrous, and as I do these wondrous deeds in my family, as I do these wondrous deeds at work, as I do these, these wondrous deeds in the church, people should praise me and tell others of my wondrous deeds. Psalm 66, shout for joy to myself, everyone. Sing the glory of my name, give to me glorious praise. Say to me, how awesome are your deeds. It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. Instead, the right way is, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. Yet there are more than can be told. Psalm 66, uh, shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Wrong, unrealistic expectations of a slave or that others will serve him, that others will serve her, and that others will praise their name. That's what Jesus is communicating here in these verses. So that's unrealistic. A slave shouldn't come into a relationship with a master thinking it's, it's t this is a relationship in which I'm going to be served. It's a relationship in which the master is going to praise me and, and talk about how great I am. Those are the unrealistic expectations. Now, let's look at realistic expectations in verse 8 and verse 10. 
here we understand that, that we're, not, we're to fight the delusion that tells us that we're in charge, that we're the master, and instead we're to understand the proper expectations for a slave. Here's what he says. Let, let me read the, the whole passage again. So verse 7, will any of you who has a, a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come and recline at table? No, uh, the expectation is that someone's going to listen to Jesus say that and say no. Verse 8, will he not rather say to him, this is what he is going to say, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink it, and then afterwards you will eat and drink. And then does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Again, the implied answer is no. Verse 10, so you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Let me just, uh, let me just go through some passages of Scripture with you in which we see the word, that, that Greek word doulos or, or slave used, and, and this kind of go through these passages and as we meditate upon this imagery of God as our master, think about some things that should, should take place as we meditate upon this imagery of, of God being our master and we being his slaves. What should happen? I'm, I want to give you kind of five thoughts here as we think about realistic expectations for a slave. The first thing that should happen is this. As we meditate upon this truth that we are slaves and God is our master, uh, it should create humility within us. Number one, it should create humility within us. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a, a servant above his master. John 13, 16, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And so as we meditate upon this truth, okay, God, God is our master, the first thing that should happen is there should be a humbling that takes place. I exist not as an equal with God. I exist not on, a, on an equal plane with God in terms of my, my purpose in life, in terms of, of the way that life should go. I am way underneath God, and, and there should be a humbling effect that takes place as we consider that. There's a, a book that I, I read when I was in high school called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and there's kind of a series of books, and there's kind of these several different genres that, that take place within these books and several different scenarios that are presented. And there's this, this one scene in the book that talks about this device. It's kind of a, it's a science fiction series that's kind of humorous, uh, depending upon your sense of humor, I suppose. But uh, there's this one scenario that talks about this device called the Total Perspective Vortex. The Total Perspective Vortex. And it's invented by this scientist whose wife is constantly telling him that he needs to have a sense of proportion and so what he does is he builds this device, and, and uh, Adams, Douglas Adams uh, writes this. He says, the universe, as has been observed before, is an unsettlingly big place, a fact for which, the sake of a, for which the sake of a quiet life most people tend to ignore, which is why the total perspective vortex is as horrific as it is. For when you're put into the vortex, you're given just one momentary glimpse of the entire unimaginable infinity of creation. And somewhere in that infinity of creation is a tiny little marker, a microscopic dot on a microscopic dot, which says, you are here. This is you. Said his wife, whenever she was put into the total perspective vortex, didn't fare so well. 
as she saw in one instant the whole infinity of creation and herself in relationship to it. And he realized, the scientists, that he had proved conclusively that if life is going to exist in a universe of this size, the one thing it cannot afford to have is a sense of proportion. As we think about the vastness of the universe and ourselves in relationship to the universe, there should be this sense of humility. As we think about the fact that we are in a relationship with the God of this universe and we're his slaves, what should be produced within us is not pride. As we think about our relationship with God, our standing before God, what should be produced is humility. Pride, pride in our relationship with God, pride in our relationships with others destroys our ability to minister. It destroys our ability to do the things that God has called us to do. As we think about ourselves as slaves, there should be humility created within us. A second thing that should happen as we think about this imagery of of us as slaves, it, it should increase our obedience to God. As we think about the fact that we're slaves and God is our master, our obedience to him should increase. Matthew 8, 9, the centurion says to Jesus, I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and I say to my servant, do this, and and he does it. As we think about our relationship with God, as we think about him as our master, and, and as he tells us what to do, the response that we should have should be one of obedience. God tells us to do this, and we do it. And obedience is expected. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is, is telling the, the parable of the, uh, the master and his slaves. And in verse 45, he says, Who then is the faithful and wise slave, the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. The expectation of a slave, as his master tells him things to do, the realistic expectation of a slave is to be obedient. Master says to do this, we do it. So often in time, in times of difficulty, our failure to understand that we're slaves affects how we view God's commandments. I was just reading a Someone sent me an article this morning that I was kind of perusing uh, real quickly before heading to church, and, and as I was reading it, it was kind of a, a treatise on why it's okay to, to disobey God in, in some areas of life. And what, the, what kind of the position of the paper was, was, was essentially um, God is a merciful God and a God who loves us and wants us to be happy. Therefore, we should be happy as we define happiness. That's, that's kind of a generalization of what the argument was. That argument is destroyed as one rightly understands this idea of master and slave. The master doesn't come to the slave and say, you know, can you tell me what would make you just really happy? Because I, I want to really know that and and what would help you self-actualize? Help me self-actualize you, right? No, the, the master says, okay, slave, here's what you're going to do. 
Now, the beautiful thing, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, is, is that we're not just slaves. There's also a love that God has for us that transcends and, and goes beyond. We're not just slaves. We're also sons and daughters. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But the idea is, as we consider ourselves slaves, it should increase our obedience. There isn't a, as we approach the commands of God, we don't look at them and go, you know what, I like that one. Uh, that one I'm a little uncomfortable with. Uh, that one is tough right now, so I'm going to kind of hold off on that one until I'm ready. Um, we say, you know, that's what I'm supposed to do. And my failure to be obedient is concerning to me, and I'm going to press more and more on towards greater obedience. So I'm supposed to persevere in my marriage. But hold on, marriage is tough. I'm going to try that one later, God. No, no, it's tough. I'm going to be obedient. I'm supposed to be careful in how I, I treat uh, other people at school. Well, God, that's kind of tough. Whenever they're gossiping about me, no, I'm going to persevere in obedience because I'm a slave. And that's what the master has told me to do. So as we think about realistic expectations for a slave and, and meditating upon this truth, what should happen, what should create humility within us, and secondly, it should increase our obedience, obedience in the hard things as well as the easy things. And thirdly, thirdly, it should remind us who we represent. As we think about slavery in the first century and what slavery meant, we see that slaves were often identified by who their master was, and a slave's behavior reflected upon his master. Remember the story of the parable of the tenants who uh, the master sends these, these slaves to these, these tenants, and the slaves, the slaves are killed by these wicked tenants. In the book of Acts, Acts uh, chapter 16, uh, this, this slave girl follows Paul and cries out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And so Paul is identified as, as a slave of God. He's identified with God due to this relationship between himself and God as his master. And so as we think about this imagery of us as slaves, we see that it creates humility within us. It, it increases our obedience and is a constant reminder of, of who we represent. Another thing that should happen here as we look at this idea of being slaves and what it means to us, it, it should result in greater faithfulness and greater perseverance. Considering ourselves as slaves should result in greater faithfulness and perseverance. In Luke uh, chapter 19, and look at this story shortly, in beginning in verse 11, we see these, these servants, these slaves who are given ten minas, and, and this, this nobleman goes off into a far country, and he calls his servants and his slaves, and he gives them these minas, these, uh, three, about three months' worth of, of uh, wages for a laborer. And, and as he goes and, and tells them what to do, there's this sense of we need to be faithful with the things that our master has entrusted us with. A realistic expectation for a slave as he thinks about what, he, what his master has given him should be a, a greater sense of faithfulness, of obedience, and, and perseverance in obedience. I'm, uh, I, enjoy to, I enjoy running, but I, I'm not a, a very fast runner. I've never been just a very fast person. In fact, I sometimes, people sometimes ask me uh, how my athletic career was in high school. I, they, maybe they're being sarcastic. I, I'm not sure, but um, I say, you know, I, I was never very fast, but at some point when I started running, I, I, I noticed that if I ran long enough, eventually other people would stop, and so I entered long-distance events to, to run. 
And what, the, what people tell me, and I'm, I'm still not very good at this, is um, if you want to improve your speed as a runner, you, you push yourself a little bit beyond what you think that you're capable of. And right now, I have a, a pace that is, is basically my pace for however far I run. I mean, if I run three miles, if I run uh, more than that, no matter how far I run, I'm running about that pace. And I, I know that means I'm not pushing myself the way that I need to push myself. And so I, I know there are these workouts where you, you basically find out how fast you can go, and, and then you go a little bit more than that. As we think about our relationship with God, God is our master, sometimes in the Christian life it can become very easy to say, you know what, uh, this is about how fast I can go. In obedience with God, this is about how much I can do. This is about how much time I can give God. This is about how obedient I can be. And God sometimes calls us, no, you're going to go a little bit more. Well, God, you'll never give me more than I can handle. Yeah, I know, a little bit more. <laughs> we, use, we, we need to use this image of us as slaves to cause us to push the boundaries of obedience, to push our perseverance. That's what God calls us to do here as we look at this image of ourselves as slaves. And then finally, as we think about our relationship with, with God, as God is our master, a fifth thing that should happen is it should change our, our self-perception. It should change our self-perception, how we view ourselves, how we define ourselves. It's interesting. If you flip through the New Testament epistles and look at the introductory message that each writer gives, over and over again, you see them identifying themselves as, as a servant or as a slave of God. Paul does it. Romans 1, Paul, a, a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus. James does it. James 1, 1, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A second, Peter, Peter does it. Simon Peter, a servant, a slave, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude does it. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Over and over again, as you ask these disciples uh, to identify themselves, they begin by identifying themselves as, as slaves. They don't begin by identifying themselves as, you know, Paul, uh, the, big, the big guy, the guy writing all these letters to you, the one that Jesus has, has called to help be one of the cornerstones of the, the Christian faith. That's not how he begins by identifying himself. As he, as he thinks about his self-perception and himself in relationship to God, he says, Paul, slave of God. This identity of being a slave should permeate our existence, should permeate who we are. Paul in Galatians 1.10 would say, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. As I think about myself, Paul says, if I was seeking the approval of man, if I was kind of my own autonomous being, I, I would be seeking their approval instead of God's. Instead, I, I'm not living to please man. I, I'm trying to be a slave of Christ. Paul, uh, Peter would say in 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. This perception of who we are, In, in our perception of who we are, this image of slave should be very prominent as we think about ourselves. Now, as I mentioned earlier, 
this idea that we're slaves is not the only truth about us. There are other things that are true of us. In fact, Jesus in John 15 would say, uh, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I, I've made known to you. Verse 20 of John 15, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master, and if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And so in other words, he's saying, look, you're not just slaves, you're also my friends, and, and yet at the same time, you are slaves, and know that if they, they persecuted the master, they're going to persecute you as well. And so there's this imagery in Scripture of us as slaves, as us of servants of God, and yet at the same time, there's a richness to this relationship that encompasses us being friends of God, sons and daughters of God as well. We think about this realistic expectation of slaves, and we see that there should be a humbling effect, an all-consuming passion to live in obedience to God. We don't exist for our own pleasure. We don't exist for others to serve us. We exist to live in obedience to God. One of the movies that our, our families recently enjoyed is uh, the, the new Muppet movie. And there's uh, several funny songs throughout this, this Muppet movie, but one of them is uh, called, I think the song is called Me Party, M-E Party, kind of a party that, they, that one has for one's self. Uh, here's, uh, here's a few lyrics, and I'm, I'm not going to sing them. Uh, it says, I'm, I'm having a me party, a party by myself. A me party, I don't need nobody else. I'm having a me party, I'm the first and last to show. There's no one at this party that I don't already know. I'm having a me party, haven't I seen me here before? A me party, I'm the last one on the dance floor. A me party, a party just for moi. A me party, it's a solo Mardi Gras. Having a me party, I'm such great company. A me party, I'll save the last dance for me. That's kind of how we view life sometimes, right? Whenever things aren't going our way, whenever things aren't up to our expectations, it's, it's me time, it's me party time, a party just for moi. Yeah, what, what does God say? He says, no, no, you're my slave. In fact, let, let me kind of bring a bunch of things together here as, as, we, as we begin to, to close, begin to close. Uh, let, let me kind of bring a couple themes together. You need to understand this. It's not like you have the choice between being your own person, autonomous, you, me party, or being a slave of Christ. Did you know that? You're going to be a slave of someone or something. In fact, Romans, Romans chapter 16, I'm sorry, uh, Romans chapter 6, Paul describes this reality, and in Romans 6, 16, he says, don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slave of the one to whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now you present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. 
you're going to be a slave to someone or something. Before you, were, you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were a slave to sin, you were a slave to disobedience, and then through the power of the gospel, through recognizing that, that you were a sinner, headed on a path toward greater lawlessness, you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of the sins, and placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And what's necessary now, and I want you to, th- to think about this as we close, what's necessary now as you think about turning from sin, turning towards righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, is now you need to live like a slave. As you think about the difficult things in life, as you think about difficult circumstances in life, as you think about the difficult path of obedience, you pursue it not as some autonomous person saying, you know what? like this, don't like this, do this, I won't do that. You approach life as a slave. As a son, yes. As a daughter, yes. As one who has God as a friend, yes. And also as one who calls the Lord Jesus Christ master. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we can be your sons and daughters through faith in him, and yet we also thank you that we can be your slaves, for we know that there is no greater joy than in obedience to you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.